have a big vision and think of yourself in the next five to ten years and where you want to be and set your plan to that. You know, never compromise on that. Work hard because it just won't happen. Hi, it's Holly Ransom here. Welcome one and all to Coffee Pods, Fuel Your Difference, a podcast for the change makers and the game changers. This podcast is built around a simple hypothesis. How long does it take to learn from someone's lifetime of experience? Coffee. So in the time it takes us to share a cup of coffee with our guests or for you to enjoy one as you listen along, we're going to tap into the lifetime of experience of some truly remarkable people who've driven significant change. I'm a big believer that success leaves clues. And be it putting an audacious idea into action, shifting a team culture, or even a country's for that matter, or using their influence to drive progress, all our guests have powerful insights, pragmatic tips, and passionate calls to action that can help each of us to fuel the positive difference we're all working to create in our lives, organisations, and communities. Coffee Potters, we have a sensational guest in store for you today, Violet Romeliotis, the 2017 Telstra Businesswoman of the Year. And as you'll see over the course of this chat, she's an unbelievably deserving recipient of that title. Violet is the CEO of a non-profit organisation called SSI, which she's turned into a, a company, a social business. And what SSI does is helps settle newly arrived refugees into Australia. They do everything from helping them out with healthcare to housing, right the way through to education and pathways to employment. Violet has built it into an extraordinary business. Three years ago, they only had 70 staff. They're now 600 staff and their revenue in the last four years has grown from 9 million to 110 million. This is a business that is doing all sorts of good for the fabric of our community and Violet's story and her approach to leadership is a truly inspiring one. So without further ado, here's Violet. Violet, thank you so much for joining us on Coffee Pods. I'm absolutely thrilled to have you here, the reigning Telstra Businesswoman of the Year. Uh, Welcome. Thank you very much, Holly. It's my pleasure. Now, one of the things that really touched me hearing you give your speech at the New South Wales final it was last year was speaking about your own uh, experience, childhood coming to Australia, which you described as coming with nothing as a child of Greek immigrants. I wanted to ask you what you remember about your early years in Australia and how they played a role in, in shaping the woman that you've become and the work that you're doing now. Well, I remember many wonderful things, Holly, about those early years. They were challenging, but they were also very rewarding and happy years. As you mentioned, my family arrived from post-World War Greece, and they left behind their country and their home for a better life, I guess, a cliche. And uh, my father couldn't pursue his education, which was um, dentistry. So coming with my mum, they turned to the salvation that many Greeks did at the time, the corner shop. And they were also, though, very busy with their business, but they also were very active community leaders. They mortgaged their family home to buy land to build the first Greek Orthodox church in the area where we lived in Bankstown in Sydney's western suburbs, which today, um, I'm glad to say, is a very vibrant parish and uh, has adjoining primary and high schools. Wow. But I do remember as a young girl seeing them participate in their local community, nurturing relationships and their cultural heritage. But I also saw a great humility And I think my parents and many of the communities I've worked with have taught me that humility is a very underrated attribute and it goes a long way in making things happen because the focus is on the benefit of others and the common good and not on yourself. And these actions, I think, and these sort of words from my parents did really shape me. I think that also, as a child, I filled in forms for relatives. I helped them when they needed interpreting during doctor's visits. 
Dad had a lot of trouble in the shop, uh, sometimes from very disaffected young people when the police didn't sort of respond in the way that we would have liked. So I'd be going down to the chamber magistrate with Dad on a Monday morning. And all of that, I think, sort of instilled in me a deep belief that uh, everyone should be treated fairly, that everyone should meet their full potential. And therefore, I guess my professional voluntary work has always been embedded in working with people who I think the system has left behind or at least has added barriers, uh, which for some can feel insurmountable. And I think there's many similarities in my family story, Holly, with the new arrivals that we work with today Mm. at SSI. And I think my desire to work hard and to be part of and contribute to the community was very much fueled by those uh, early years. They sound like really remarkable people. How is it that you started on your own journey, that passion that you talk about for wanting to help others, for wanting to give voice to people who have been forgotten by the system and support them? How did that that start sort of at school and and in your years after? Well, very much, I think, being um, a young child and having to sort of step in and be an adult at times for my parents or for relatives or going to school and feeling that I was somewhat the other or something different. Mm. But also going home and being able to talk about that in my, with my family, with my parents and my sisters. And the messages were always very consistent. Uh, our parents were always saying, you have to be resilient, you have to be optimistic, you have to educate yourself. So what they, their response was always, we want you to learn music. And so, you know, the three sisters, we all learned piano and we'd argue who'd get up at 6 a.m. in the morning, who'd get the first shift <laughs> of piano lesson. Um, you know, and we'd, we'd be, you know, sewing classes and Greek school and all of that. And the, there was very much expected that we would go to university. And the message very much from my parents was education is something that you have that no one can ever take from you. It's an investment for yourself. And they very much valued that and provided us the opportunities to, you know, to go to university and get qualifications. And also, I think the messages were around uh, being generous and looking after others to extend a hand out. And I think that, you know, I grew up feeling that although, yes, I had a different culture at home to what I experienced at school, it was a strength. I didn't see it as a deficit. I was proud of it. And also the message from my parents was very much, you're very lucky you've got two cultures of two countries. I love Never that. forget your cultural heritage, but also remember, that's right, what Australia has offered you and what it will offer you in the future. And that really, I think, led to um, my strong sense of identity and what really has inspired me to, to move into the areas that I have. I wanted to ask you about SSI. There's a lot that I want to talk about with the work that you're doing there. Now, for those who don't know it, it's a non-profit organisation that helps settle refugees in Australia. And really, the mission is around giving voice to the vulnerable and raising awareness of the economic value of migration, as well as the support services that you provide. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but through SSI's employment and enterprise efforts, over 1,100 people have gained work in the past 18 months. I wanted you to unpack for us a little bit about the experience that a new arrival has coming to Australia and I guess the process of how you go through helping someone to start a new life here. It's important I guess that people realise that refugees arriving in Australia come from highly diverse backgrounds and experiences and of course as a result face a range of different challenges throughout their settlement journey. No one organisation or one sector can respond to that effectively and get great outcomes. So it's certainly something that needs to be done collaboratively 
at SSI, our view is that, you know, successful settlement, what does that actually mean when you think about it? Is it does it take a year? Does it take a lifetime? But essentially for us, if, if somebody arrives in Australia and at some stage they feel that they are participating socially, that they feel independent and that they can do a range of things independently and know where they need to access something, they can do it, uh, a sense of personal well-being, and of course, lastly, most importantly, is they, they have economic participation, then that's a pretty good guide. We, SSI, and our SSI staff are the first faces that refugees see when they arrive in Sydney. They arrive at the airport and we are literally there to pick them up, to greet them, usually in their own language, pick them up and settle them into their first home in Australia. And then we do very basic things in the first few days, assist them to register Medicare, get a tax file number for them, open a bank account and other essential services, enrol their, help them enrol their children in school. We, of course, do essential health assessments, refer them to torture and trauma services or refugee health if they need it, enrol in English classes, very importantly. And then really, you know, important things, Holly, such as walk them through their local neighbourhoods to see where they can shop and then invite them to attend orientation on how things are done in Australia and in inverted commas. You know, what are their rights and responsibilities as tenants? You know, how do we respond to different things in the law? You know, those sort of basic things that people need. And then, of course, an important part of it is to really assess their, their past, you know, working lives and careers. Do they have skills and qualifications? Uh, are they, you know, going to be recognised in Australia? And if not, how do we go about assisting in that? Did they run businesses? You know, do they have business acumen or interest? Are they entrepreneurs? So I think we do that really successfully because we're experts in it. It's our bread and butter work. It's our core work. But more importantly, we have bilingual staff and many of them who themselves are refugees, Holly. Mm. And they have made a career of this. They want to give something back. They feel that this is something that they want to do. We've also moved into doing a lot of sort of innovative collaborations and partnerships with the corporate sector. And this has led to a number of business organisations working with us and they've committed to employ or to mentor, to offer internships and scholarships and to train refugees, a whole range of things, and also to assist in job readiness programs, so offering them work experience, which is a big barrier for refugees when they don't have local work experience, and also working collaboratively and getting people's skills recognised and work experience, as I said, for professionals and for the trades and working with industry groups. It's just brilliant how much you do. And I, I was truly blown away. Uh, I remember one of the, the statistics that was shared when you won the, the Telstra Business Women Awards is just how dramatically SSI has grown over the last couple of years. Um, from a staff of less than 73 years ago to over 600 staff and your revenue has gone up from, I think, $9 million to, to over $110 million. What was the most difficult part of the rapid expansion? As a, as a leader whose business is growing, um, what was the, the tricky bit for you and your leadership team? Well, I think the, big, the, the trickiest thing really was, you know, being able to... I had a vision in my head and I had a plan. And the, the trickiest thing was how do I, you know, relay that to both my internal stakeholders or our staff and to external? But if we look first at the internal, it was about... Um, they were very much when we moved into different areas. For example, we were working refugees and asylum seekers. And then we started working in, in the foster care area with children in, in foster care. And we had a very interesting 
model where we culturally match the children in foster care with either their foster parents or their case managers. And we'd have staff saying, but why are we doing this? We're, you know, we're a refugee or a multicultural organisation. We, we haven't done this before. So there was that kind of pushback. So the whole change management around our staff and being able to bring them with us and also around the governance challenges I was talking to you about, being able to set in systems and to be able to sort of look at our directors and our management structure, well, people will start saying, will start to say, oh, but we're becoming very corporate. And that was meant in a bad way. People were very frightened that we were losing our hearts and we were becoming too corporate. So being able to message and say, you know, bringing these sort of efficiencies, looking at opportunities where we can we bring in some commercial uh, uh, revenue as well, working with large companies such as Allianz and Woolworths, these bring great benefits for our communities. So messaging that was quite a hurdle and a challenge because change management, as we know, Holly, is really hard, even oh, when we can see that? the benefits of it. And externally, it was also essentially when, when we first we refunded our flagship program. The community and our partners were very happy for us and our members, of course. But as we started winning more and more contracts and growing, we saw that there was people were becoming a bit frightened of us as well. They thought, oh, hang on. They're getting really big now. Are they going to try and compete for our funding? So there was a bit of a shift. And again, um, being able to engage with people honestly and openly and talk to them about the vision and what was motivating us was was difficult, but it was, I think, what at the end, we got it right. And one of the examples I give is, I remember reading when I was doing my master's, this amazing book, and it was called Honeybees and Locusts, The Business Case for Sustainable Leadership. And it was written by Avery and Berg, Bergsteiner. But essentially, the title obviously reflects a metaphor about honeybees and locusts. And it, I guess it represents a creation destruction since at least biblical times. But in terms of the business world and the not-for-profit sector, and that's how I looked at it, it's about collaborating and generating value for your organisation, for your community and for the environment, rather than just looking at you know, self-interest. And we all know of organisations, I guess, that operate in a way where they sort of consume whatever lies in their paths. And I think what I try to relay in relation to SSI and its mission and purpose and, of course, its values is that we, we have honeybee practices. And what I'm really, you know, which is about fruitful, sustainable uh, organisations that can be competitive but not uh, predatory. And I'm very proud of the fact that we have grown and our revenues have grown without in any way being predatory to any of our colleagues uh, in our sector. It's been done by inviting people in and um, negotiating and talking and co-designing and moving forward collectively and growing the pie. You alluded in your answer there that change management's never easy. And I also think particularly, I mean, your passion is like, I'm, I'm bouncing off walls listening to you talk about what you do at SSI. I love it. I think it's amazing that you're, um, you've found your calling and you've lived it through what you're doing now and certainly what you've done to this point. But I think both through change management and when you're very passionate about the cause that you're working on, it's very easy to risk burnout almost in implementing the, the ambitious vision for growth that you've got. I wanted to know how, as a, a leader, you actually navigated that period for yourself. What did you do to make sure that 
you were, I guess, in a place to be able to give what you needed to to the people in your team, to the people in your organisation, and, and ultimately to the vision you wanted to create? Yes, that's a really interesting question. I think, again, it fueled fueled by what I saw growing up, lots of people in communities that were living very busy lives, like their own businesses, working hard in factories, but finding the time always to give to community, you know, to help, you know, that, that volunteer, that's building that social capital. And so that, that sort of view that you can be busy, but you must always put some of your time towards others has always sort of motivated me. So when I became, when I was a young graduate uh, in the 1980s, I was really fortunate, Holly, when I moved into this area of work to have very generous people around me who became wonderful mentors. And they were people that I could ring up. And sometimes I'm not, I'm sure I was asking them stupid questions, but they never made me feel that I was. And it made me very grateful that uh, there are people around. It, it sort of inspired me and well, gave me the trust to feel that you have to be authentic and actually say, I don't know what's happening here. Can you help me? Um, I'm very curious about this. Is there a better way of doing this? So very early on, I learned that I don't know the answer to everything. I'm not always going to be the smart. I might never be the smartest person in the room, but to know myself and what my strengths are and what, um, and then what I need to sort of learn and understand. And the other thing is I've always nurtured and valued relationships in my per personal and professional life. And I think that I've been very lucky. I met uh, my life partner. I've been married to him now for 37 years. So we've been together since I was 21. Hmm. And I have two children in their 20s. Uh, my sisters and my mum are sort of a wonderful sort of personal, lots of wonderful friends that I've known for, for a long time from school and university and through work, but also professional relationships. And I'm a great connector, you know, I, and I'm really energized by people. So I link into when I'm feeling a bit demoralized or low energy um, or a bit despondent, I'm able to sort of ring someone and say, can we have a coffee? Let's have a drink. And catching up with people and sort of, being able to sort of talk it through and debrief during really these challenging times was very, uh, very useful for me. You know, people that I can go to that I trust and uh, who were generous with their time and with their advice and guidance. And I think the other thing that helped me was, again, going back to knowing that there were areas or gaps in my skill set that I needed to address. And I, you know, some, and that's challenging too, particularly when you're busy or you can get caught up and think, oh, no, I don't have the time. You make these excuses. I thought, no, I forced myself um, to enroll and do my master's in management, which taught me so much, but also introduced me to some interesting people uh, in other sectors that fueled that interest. So hang on, we can, we can actually work together. So that opened doors for me. But also it introduced me to a whole lot of theories that I thought, oh, yes, you know, I'm applying some of this. Oh, no, I'm going to try this. I love this. So learning and more recently I do webinars. I go to as many sort of debates or uh, talks or conferences. I find all of that very stimulating and, again, assists me in sort of learning and uh, opening my mind to new possibilities. The other challenge I was wondering about how you navigate is you deal with the really personal side of what's become an increasingly 
um, political issue and a political hot potato, really, in many ways in the last few years. Um, you know, the refugee matter globally and certainly uh, there's a handful of politicians, if not uh, certain policies at large, that have been, I guess, led to a really toxic, negative debate sometimes. And I wanted to know how you navigate that with your team, you know, dealing with the people, being the, being the ones that pick them up from the airport, meet these beautiful people, know the stories, are helping them settle. Um, how do you shelter yourself um, from that narrative or is that fuel to the fire to just keep working harder and doing more? How do you handle those conversations? Well, we decided strategically that we cannot counter every negative media story or political commentary, that we would... Again, take power back, power with the community, not over, and actually use social media and the resources that we had. Because what we realized, Holly, is that we have an extraordinary talent pool. As you say, we have thousands of people first contact with us coming through our door and we're accompanying them on their first steps in this beautiful country where we know historically since 1945, something like 800,000 refugees and humanitarian entrants have arrived in Australia. And the great majority have lived good lives. They're good, you know, they, they became Australian citizens and were aspirational, ran businesses, worked hard, you know, built social capital through civil society organisations, all of that, second and third generations. So we see that every day. And what we decided was we would use our social media and we would assist our people to speak for themselves because we know that refugees that arrive are more than visa types and they're more than just their story of trauma you know, and hardship. They actually come with great strengths and great stories and great talents. And so we've um, provided opportunities for our you know, refugees to speak for themselves. So instead of being, you know, uh, an asylum seeker, you know, it is a talented artist who through our arts and cultural program and through other wonderful arts uh, organisations we have in Sydney, showcase their, do exhibitions or speak about their art and what motivated their art. Because of course, a lot of our refugees who arrive are the middle class, the artists, and they're the first that usually persecuted in their countries because of their, usually their political views that they express through their art. And, um, or the young Iranian boy who goes to Blacktown Public School, who is a fantastic at judo, and the local judo club is fundraising to get into the state finals, for example. Or the wonderful entrepreneur, you know, Sima, who could not speak a word of English when she arrived, only Arabic, but she was a very talented leather maker. And through our Ignite program, which assists refugees to start up their own businesses, they bought, they helped to buy some cheap leather, or that, not cheap leather, but leather cheaply rather. She started making her goods and selling them at markets and making a living for herself. She was off income support within three months of being in the country. Wow. And every time we met her, her English would improve. And now she's got a really successful uh, online business. So those stories are very compelling. And on the other side, stories of just the other day, I bumped into one of my our colleagues who works in our risk and compliance area, and he said, Violet, I have to tell you this story. His name is Kusai. He goes, I was on the bus going home, and I see uh, a colleague walking. I don't know him, but he had the SSI badge. 
And he walked in with a refugee family and he was showing them how to use an Opal card on the bus and then talking to them in Arabic. And Kusai speaks Arabic himself. And he said, it just warmed my heart to see a colleague of mine. He says, I felt so proud um, working with this family on something as, as important as how to use public transport and that they're on their way in terms of living, you know, their own independent life. And I think that's what inspires our staff um, that, you know, they see, they, they see that they can make a difference in people's lives and they do despair sometimes with the narrative. But importantly, and I feel this too, Holly, I walk around a lot, you know, I, I visit our different organisations where our members are and our different projects and I go to different events where we have a lot of our refugee asylum seeker clients and the narrative at a, in our neighbourhoods and local levels, local communities, is not what we hear every day in the media. Mm. And that is what inspires me and reminds me that Australians are very generous and um, uh, at times when they hear this narrative, they get frightened. I understand that. But, my, you know, it, it, it is um, disappointing when that happens. But at the coalface, I'm not Pollyanna, I'm not saying there isn't issues. We do have some issues. But certainly if you look at Australia and then look at Europe and some of the hate crimes and the challenges that they have in those countries, Australia is certainly doing something right. And we're doing, I think, integration, social cohesion very well. I wanted to ask you about that because I know you sit on the New South Wales government's uh, Justice and Multicultural Advisory Group. I wanted to ask what can each and every one of us do to help us become a more inclusive multicultural society? Well, I think that people who have an opportunity to sit on such committees and advisory councils to influence public policy is a great start because, you know, we always can have champions in the community as we see in many areas. But what we actually need is systemic change. We need to embed mechanisms and systems in place that actually accept that we are a country of immigrants, that all except our Indigenous people arrived at some stage, and that irrelevant of where you've come from, you should assess the person and their value about looking at that person, not um, looking at a stereotypical sort of assessment of their faith or their country of origin. So I think being on committees such as that allows you the opportunity to try and influence public policy and try to embrace a much broader uh, social justice uh, lens on a lot of what we do. Because quite often, of course, economic participation is important, but people, when they arrive on these shores, bring much more than just their skills, for example, when they might be chosen, they bring you know, um, they've been educated by another country. We haven't had to spend a cent and they come and they're consumers immediately spending money on rent or they buy property or they pay school fees. But alternatively, they also have a different view and culture. And some of that Australia embraces because we think this is great. We, we love this. And other things people eventually find, no, this isn't going to work here because it's not part of the value system. And, and slowly that dis dissipates. And so, therefore, our government at all levels needs policies and programs that actually recognises transition periods and provides opportunities for people with the carrot and not the stick to understand that things can be done differently here. And uh, I think that's what's important around government structures, that resources are put at all levels of government 
to support communities to be cohesive and to be curious about each other and not frightened of each other. I wanted to ask you, for someone who's going, you know what, I could do a better job of engaging with people that are different from me, be that cultural, gender, age, you name it. What's a simple starting place for that? What advice do you have? Well, the advice is to, you know, it, I think it's a very common thing. When you first meet someone, you just don't ask for something. It is about engaging authentically. So, you know, when, for example, when we were approached by Alliance, they were very interested in... They wanted to, one of their key KPIs of the managing director, of course, was to diversify the workforce because they see that as a good business and productive diversity. And they approached us and they, they weren't quite sure about who we were. And we weren't quite sure if, how could we work with Alliance Insurance, this huge corporation. And so there were a series of meetings where we met with the MD, but also with the middle managers. And that is where I think the trick is because you can always get a CEO to tick something off, but it's about being able to sort of build a relationship of trust and respect, mutual respect with the people who are actually going to help you make this happen, you know, at that operational level. And that is, I think, the success of really good, you know, meaningful relationships where you say, actually, this is our interest. That's your interest. That's great. How can we make this work? And then you look at building the relationship and all the different components of it and not rushing it and ensuring that you're listening actively to the other side, what their needs are, and you're problem solving as you're going. So a two-way thing. And this for us in terms of the Alliance partnership, it's been running now for two and a half years. It's won many awards for SSI and for Alliance nationally and internationally because it's built on, it was client-centred. You know, we didn't ever take away from the importance that at the end of the day, this has to work for the refugee who's coming in. And also the uh, Alliance saying, we promise that we will treat them respectfully, but we will treat them like we treat any other employee, which was very important for us, uh, that they weren't patronised. And very important that also both, uh, that Alliance understood that once they start having more and more refugees coming in at different levels and rotating around, that's going to shift and change their culture and they need to be aware of that. And then we talked about how we could support them to do that. So, you know, it led from one thing to the other. Then they said, okay, now we're going to, because you're supporting us in, in referring people to the, the needs that we have, because a lot of the jobs were, were not entry level at all, they were quite uh, high-end positions, and then we supported people once they were in the job, like a sort of mentoring uh, for the first six months. They then said, we would like to uh, engage with you and develop a scholarship program for refugee uh, education, kids in high school and for university. So one thing led to the other. And I think this is the beauty of deep and meaningful, respectful relationships where you start at a point, you build relationship, and then it opens a world of opportunities. Great story of an amazing, evolving relationship. I look forward to following where that goes next. Um, now, Violet, I'm incredibly appreciative of the time that you've given us today. And there's two final questions we like to ask all of our guests on Coffee Pods. The first is, for those who are listening, and we have a lot of listeners who will be 
absolutely in awe of what you've done from from the personal uh, connection that they too dream of having the sort of impact on the lives uh, of people in community that you have achieved and that you are doing day in day out with your team at SSI. So for those listening who aspire to have that sort of impact to reach and touch the lives of people in community what's the best bit of advice you could give them on how to start? Well I think to dream big have a big vision and you know look Think of yourself in the next five to 10 years and where you want to be and set your plan to that. You know, never compromise on that. Work hard because it just won't happen. You, you know, you've got to put in the time and the effort and whatever you put in, you will get back tenfold. It's like any investment in something. If you put, uh, invest in it, it will come back uh, early on. It will come back in tenfold. Back to my theme about nurturing relationships. I think building strong, respectful relationships, being generous with your time, both within your profession or your industry and outside of it. You know, look at engaging with people who are very different to you because you will learn a lot and be inspired and motivated and they will always bring some lens and some interesting sort of insights into what you're doing and your, your vision or your plan. And trust your instincts, particularly for women. I think quite often we don't do that enough and uh, we allow others to derail us or unnerve us. So trust your instincts and uh, don't second guess yourself, but also be honest with yourself and reflect and understand yourself and what your triggers are. Keep learning and keep challenging yourself. Do things that make you scared and uncomfortable. It's okay, you know, it, it, you'll feel great after it. And I think just to, to encourage yourself to be open and to be curious and to ask questions because you never know what you can learn when you sit down and, and talk to somebody or when you read something. Be open. And, uh, and I think that always will bring you wonderful insights and opportunities. That was a very rich uh, set of advice. I thank you for that. And finally, for those listening, what's the call to action that you would like to leave them with? Well, maybe a bit of a cliche, but Australia was built on migration and the abundance of skills, experience and passion of all our newcomers of whichever background, whichever visa type who've arrived on our shores. And I think the ask is about engaging with Indigenous Australia in a respectful way, again, to build deep and meaningful relationships with our Indigenous peoples, to move away from thinking of people as visa types or as um, a religion or as a particular ethnic background to see people for who they are and to always remember that as a citizen, we have so much that we can offer. So, you know, many of us are busy, but when we go to the local coffee shop or even to the school and drop off our kids and meet the new person who's arrived at the school who looks like they've just arrived from overseas or in your local coffee shop, you know, buy a coffee and, and meet somebody new. Reach out to organisations like SSI and many like us and say, what can I do to help? I'm great at website design or I'd love to go bike riding with somebody or I'd love to mentor a new person who's started a new job and just support them in that transition. And I just want to think about this anecdote of a young man who's 16 who had been a client of SSI, and it's called Ginger George. He was from <laughs> Syria, red hair, red beard. This dynamic young man, a future leader, 
but he was invited to go and speak to a, a private girls' school in Sydney. And I had the pleasure of being there. And he was talking to the girls and their teachers. And he said, tell me, what do you think newly arrived young refugees need? And the girls were saying, oh, they need housing. They need food. They need uh, Opal cards. They need... And he goes, wrong, wrong. What we need is friends. Oh, wow. We want to meet Australian people and have friendships. And if you saw the faces of the girls and going, yes, sure, they got their phones out and they started tweeting and started, you know, taking selfies and whatever. And it was this amazing moment that of humanity, you know, what we're talking, you know, that's what we're talking about. So all of us have a capacity to give of our time, whether it's 10 minutes in a week or three hours, we can do it. So that's my call out to people. Be curious, uh, engage and develop friendships with people that, you might never have thought you would do. That is a great, absolutely inspiring, but also a really actionable uh, uh, insight to end on. And I think it's one each and every one of us listening can think about how we take forward into our day, into our week, into the way that we start to approach life, using those opportunities, <laughs> those otherwise innocuous moments where we're waiting, waiting in line for a coffee or um, you know, waiting in a, a waiting room or to meet someone or whatever, to actually turn to the person next to us, introduce ourselves, have a conversation and engage. So... Violet, I That's can't right. thank you enough for what you've shared today, your openness um, in speaking of your own journey, your experience and what you're doing at SSI. And I feel so grateful and, and it really does warm my heart to know that people like you with such an extraordinary level of passion and compassion are out there day in, day out, supporting people who are arriving here to make a great goal of it in Australia and who are enriching the fabric of our community as a consequence. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for the work that you do with SSI uh, and thank you for sharing sharing with Coffee Pods today. Thank you, Holly, for the opportunity. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback by tweeting me at Holly Ransom or leave a review for the podcast. To cater to coffee length breaks, we've reduced the length of this podcast, but you can listen to this conversation in full and sign up to receive our free fortnightly updates packed with info and ideas by visiting www.coffeepodswithholly.com. So for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.